this this killer has gotten gotten his plea accepted. So that's it's very hard to accept. But we respect the judge's decision here today. This isn't about him. It's about justice for my little girl. It's about justice for Michaela. I now have more faith in the prisoners because at least in prison they know what to do with baby killers. You are back. It's another episode of Why Are We Like This, the true crime show that treats Florida like the active crime scene that it is. I'm your host, David Quinones, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tomas Kennedy. Tomas. Hey, y'all. America's comeback started yesterday. Let's go. And the inimitable, iconic Gerald Doherty. Jerry, welcome back. How are you? Um, Bit of a palate cleanser from politics this week. Uh, getting away from the midterms. It's Thanksgiving week, and we've pulled a story from the annals of Florida's uh, uh, violent recent past that centers on one fam- one family's tragic holiday. It's kind of a salacious story that may have retreated from the public memory, but one that we hope to use as sort of a backdoor to talk about the state of our mental health care system here in Florida, or lack of it. Um, we're going to get into that moment uh, in a moment, but first, just a few quick why are we like this news items I want to cover before we get to this week's case file? And where better to start than Palm Beach, Florida, Mar-a-Lago, uh, the Mar-a-Lago Club, Club, home of one former and maybe future president, Donald J. Trump. It's been years since our big boy came down that golden escalator in, in Trump Tower and announced his candidacy to a gaggle of paid extras, beginning one of the most tragic and definitely the most funny chapter in American politics. But does Donnie still have the same magic? Because... A little bit into his speech, which was frankly a bit low energy, if we're talking honestly, uh, a bit meandering. Fox News actually cut away from the coverage. Uh, And then this, apparently in an act straight out of a 19th century Austrian concerto, members of the audience tried to make an early exit and were met with uh, locked doors. Uh, That's just a fire hazard, honestly. (laughs) I think all of Mar-a-Lago is a fire hazard. I do want to point something out. I don't know if you guys caught this. I only watched like the first like 15 minutes and I just got immediately bored. Um, Because, you know, this was like, oh, like, you know, controlled Trump, you know, disciplined Trump, Trump on message. He he didn't talk about all the pundits were like he didn't mention the conspiracy theories or the election fraud or the election denying. But he actually did. I don't know if you remember, but 10 minutes into this, like, no, five minutes into his speech. He starts talking about China, and then he's like, China, they meddled in our elections. Maybe that's why. Just say it. <laughs> just throw just it. Say it. I, I, love, yes. I, lo- I love how he'll just, just, he'll just cast out a line to see if it, like, gets any kind of pickup. And, like, man, if it doesn't, it doesn't. Whatever. But, like, maybe. But, who knows? But it's so different from 2016 where, like, he would have confidence in a line. And if someone wasn't buying it, he would jam that line down their throat. Like yeah. if they even dared question it and that theater drove a lot and it's just, you know, personality driven, but that theater drove, I mean, I would say still is driving, um, Republican politics at this point. Um, I think it's all, it reminded me, I was thinking back to 26, like things that started in 2016 that have grown stale now and watching this speech, it reminded me of Stranger Things, where season one, everyone was very fascinated and captured <laughs> by this show that is basically just like Stephen King, 1980s nostalgia. And like, I'm I'm perfectly capable of being nostalgic for an era I was never around in in the first place. Like, fine. It was fun to watch. By this point, everyone knows the formula for Stranger Things and everyone knows the formula for Donald Trump to the point where he has imitators. 
Right. Like if you want to know what Trumpism looks like at its at its height, it's not even in the, the person of Donald Trump. It's Mike Lindell's doing symposium on the China packets and you know uh, the pillows from uh, from the Middle East with the silk and everything, and that's it's divinely inspired by biblical lands and everything. It's <laughs> everything's gotten diluted. Like the market is diluted because he has so many imitators now. I mean, look but at Car- look at Carrie Lake. Like Car- like when he first announced. Uh, what was the first controversy he had beyond the you know Mexican comments? It was about John McCain, and now that's like shitting on John McCain is like just par for the course. If you're a it's a rite of passage in those circles, right? Yeah, but using your Stranger Things analogy, Gerald, mm-hmm. it might not be the same hit it was season number one, but it's still the top ratings and money maker sure. for Netflix. Sure. So you know Trump is still the king. Yeah, he's still the Republican Party il duce. Um, so don't 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 count don't count him out, bro. I'm not it's counting him out. I'm I'm just saying that this seems like you know him like guessing at what people might like rather than you're gonna like this whether you like it or not. Basically, is it is a change of pace among Stranger Things fans? Stranger Things is still hugely popular, and you yeah. could you could kind of say the same thing about about our our big boy. Um, but what about the other big boy? What about Florida's other big boy? Moving on to story number two, uh, Ron DeSantis, unlike Trump, is actually in a position of elected leadership right now and is continuing to govern as he has for the past four years in a corrupt and strong arm manner dedicated to crushing political enemies and undermining what little function remains in our government institutions. And one of his favorite institutions, as we know, to pick on is school boards in liberal counties. So on Monday, the Broward County School Board unexpectedly decided to oust Superintendent Vicki Wright in a five to four vote. Now, the interesting thing here that people might have missed is that the five commissioners who voted for her removal were not elected, but rather are political appointees handpicked by DeSantis. And four of them will be off the school board. Either one of them, I think, just left the other day. And then the other three are going to be gone uh, within a ma- matter of weeks. I mean, how much more of this are we going to see? Like, just like, I, I don't know why he would stop after winning by almost 20 points. Like, this is, um, I don't know. I, I feel like we're, we're in for at least another two years, probably another four years of these kinds of recriminations, I, right? I, I just want to start by saying that uh, DeSantis is actually not a big boy. He's 5'8". Yeah, he's a small boy. He's uh, which is about the height of Napoleon, who was 5'6", who was actually quite tall for his time. So, he's a round but... boy. Many twists and turns that life takes. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know. It's it's just like I I, I can't. Uh, what's funny is that like all of these stories are always like open ended because you don't like from what I read. There's a chance that when the elected appointees come in or the elected officials come in, replacing the political appointees, that like they could just give Cartwright her job back. So it's like all of this stuff is just posturing. It's all just for show or something. I would say he has no reason not not only not to stop, but to see how far this can go. If only, if only because this is the once Trump was gone, the GOP had to figure out where the party would go in his absence. And the two roads they took were the Christopher Ruf, Rufo. Um, you know, they're teaching our kids about Martin Luther King, and this is terrible. And the other one was the Tucker Carlson, um, the Globo Homo was doing gender to your children. Like, the, yeah. those were the two strange, neither of which I would say were very aggressively pushed by Donald Trump from yeah. 20, 2015. I mean, for all the awful shit he said, I've never heard him weigh in very much on what's happening in our schools, if only because, 
you know, I don't think he's particularly, I mean, you know, Baron, I'm sure has a private tutor. There's no reason for him to give a shit. Um, and uh, I don't think, you know, he's already weighed in in 2016 that he doesn't give a shit where people go to the bathroom, um, when the bathroom bills were, were at their peak of, you know, um, national prominence. Um, so I think DeSantis is going to continue on this path just because he knows the party will go along with it because it seems to be the only direction they've given themselves is culture. Um, so I think you're going to see, try to see him do it, but also every time he asserts power, um, it gives the base, uh, how shall I, it gives them a bit of jazz. I'll say they like the, the exercise of power. Yeah. They like to see power being exercised at, at people they do not like. That alone is going to keep him in their good graces. And why would he do otherwise? I mean, he, he got elected, reelected by an 18 point margin doing this shit. And obviously, right. this shit doesn't play in the rest of the country. I mean, right. the midterms pro- proves that. And maybe if the Democrats would have put up a fight, uh, you know, here, it, it might have it might have not played here either. But, you know, he's been vindicated, uh, regrettably, on a lot of this crap that does nothing to help Floridians. And the reality is, even if he wants to compete nationwide, you know, in the presidency in 2024, first he has to get the Republican primary voters, right? Yeah. So Who aren't going to give a shit, honestly, about the Broward County superintendent getting axed in the middle of the night. Like, that's not going to, that doesn't fire him up, like to Jerry's point, the same way that, that I think that Trump's just like national big picture instincts are, just better when it comes to like what people are reacting. Yeah. You know, he's a, populist. He's, he's a true economic populist, an, an, an idiot, an, an idiotic one, yeah. but yeah. You can, you know, you can count on Newsmax, One America, Fox to try to make anyone on the Broward School Board that they don't like into a villain for a few news cycles. But I think that, especially as American empire declines, Trump is keenly aware that the main villain that needs to be kept in you know, their um, focus is Xi Jinping, that basically if we're going to restore America to, what is it, uh, Magaga now, uh, make America yeah, great and glorious again, <laughs> you're not going to do that by going toe-to-toe with a, a school board member. You're going to do it by going to, you know, the person uh, who is the only real challenge to American hegemony. And I think that, you know, that's going to be the main factor is, uh, or the main question is where do you direct your attention um, I don't know that DeSantis is going to have an answer to that. Not one that's that's going to resonate nearly as much as Trump because Trump's already been to the presidency. Yeah. And speaking of villains, we have a new one that we learned about over the course of the last week. Some folks always knew about him. Uh, if you've been following uh, or having getting force fed uh, crypto and Bitcoin and Web 3.0. Uh, shit. Yes. Um, we have an international story for our third our third uh a third little news hit. Tomas, I know we've got a bigger crypto scam episode upcoming very soon, uh, but I didn't want to let the week go by without mentioning that our city mayor, Francis Suarez, uh, Mayor Bitcoin, Mayor Miami Coin, Mayor Shitcoin, is probably once again regretting aligning himself with a sketchy, unregulated, clunky technology that solves zero problems while introducing a host of new ones, led by a group of out-and-out fraudsters, hucksters, and scam artists, promising to be the innovative future of economic freedom, but instead turning out to be little more than a new type of Ponzi scheme. This past week, everyone outside of the world of crypto learned the name Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of failed FTX, 
an international crypto exchange that turned out to be nothing more than a bunch of kids in a trench coat living in the Bahamas and apparently all banging each other. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is how it should be. Uh, yeah. that was the only cool part Sorry, you're, you're, you're rehabilitating this guy for me in real time. <laughs> <laughs> this, is not a, this is not supposed to be a puff piece. David. I know. <laughs> Suffice to say, at this point, you've probably already heard or read about this guy, an absolute embarrassment of a person who evaporated billions of dollars and seems to have absconded with even more. I don't. I can't even really get a straight answer on where this... Uh, apparently, he's just circling Latin America in a jet wait, trying to find a place to land. Um, but the Florida connection, the Miami connection, our very own beloved Miami Heat are playing in a stadium freshly christened the FTX Arena, formerly known as the American Airlines Arena, following a groundbreaking, I think, $150 million deal between the city and Bankman-Fried last year. The deal was so ballyhooed that Mayor Suarez spent some time on stream with Bankman-Fried last year to hype it up. FTX is a company that didn't exist four years ago. I mean, how can a 19-year deal be safe for such a new company? Yeah, I totally hear you on that. And it, it's a good question. And I, I mean, you know, without going into the details, um, it's it's been um, it, it's been a pretty good year for us. And, you know, to the point where, frankly, we, you know, we don't need to rely on the other 18 years, um, you know, to, to have the, the, the funds for this. Guys, I think of things like Enron Stadium, which I don't know if you guys remember that the Houston Texan, uh, the, the, the Houston Astros Stadium used to be called Enron Stadium. Um, Crypto.com is the name of the Staples Center now. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, Tomas, you were the one that flagged on social media that that this guy, the Bankman Freed, had a um, relationship with our city and with our with our boy mayor. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you, what do you think? You're going to be trying to get your money out? Have you been able to get your money out of FTX or no? Yeah, I have exactly uh, $1.33 on Coinbase uh, that I invested only to see the price fluctuations on my yeah. $1. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just, you know, ridding my teeth, uh, terrified about my investment. <laughs> I did kind of the same thing. I opened up like a, like a $50 account just to like goof around and to be able to see stuff. And they sent me a fucking debit card without even asking me. They just sent me a fucking debt. I feel like my, 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 like just having this in my wallet is making money drain out of my account. Um, like literally as we speak. I'm, Bro, I'm, happy. It's, I'm it's illiterate like, when it comes to crypto, but is not the whole point of crypto that you do it on the computer and your phone. Why are we going back to I old tech it's, or it's, new tech? <laughs> I mean, the whole point, like, and a lot of like the true, like, crypto purists right and like the the crypto revolutionaries that actually <clears throat> think that this is going to become some like decentralized finance system that's going to get rid of fiat currency which i think it's fucking insane yeah. and stupid regardless but a lot of those like crypto like purists or whatever you want to call them actually hate people like sam bankman fried and zz from binance because the whole point of crypto is that it's supposed to be peer-to-peer -peer right. without like a centralized exchange like FTX or Binance. And if you're doing crypto uh, through something like FTX, you're kind of a noob and you're kind of missing the point. Yeah. And you're kind of stupid. But yeah. being cringe, like, as the kids yeah, say. Should, yeah, they're like, like they're acquiescing to the old system. They're like trying to Correct. trying to make they're it be more like it. banks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When these people yeah. don't want that. You you are creating the layman brothers of crypto and you know unsurprisingly you've got the same results but regardless like don't 
put like serious money in crypto. It's not going to replace fiat currency. It's just a hobby horse for gambling addicts. And it's okay if you just want to gamble some money. But like it's uh, as an ideological project is garbage. And if you keep uh, investing all your money in it and not diversifying your portfolio, you're just going to end up losing all your money. I would also, as we're talking about the, the sports stadiums, uh, a bit of a throwback, Tomas and I, I think it was earlier in the year, uh, interviewed uh, Doug Henwood, um, who uh, made a point that in the 90s, a lot of the companies that were going under in dot-com when that bubble burst all had their signage uh, yeah. on the names of sports stadiums. Pets.com. So, Pets.com, I yeah, think, for, had a stadium in LA yeah. or Anaheim or something like that. Yeah. I forget. Yeah. I think the it was no I forget what they changed Staples Center to, but I know it was crypto-related. Yeah, crypto.com. Um, that's Staples Center. Yep. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, yeah, so, you know... <laughs> As it was, so it shall be. What do you guys think about the um, like the attempt on the right to paint Bankman Fried as sort of like a like a Manchurian, you know, financier for the Democrat, the Democratic Party, like because he has all those sort of family connections and all the all the the, the money connections. Like he really did give a lot of money to uh, what is it called? Ethical fucking I forget what it's called. Effective altruism. Effective altruism. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Earning to give, David. We're earning to give. No, I want to say something here. First of all, um, usually in like history and economics, you you don't see a lot of having to like promote a currency. Like if you're seeing ads for you to like for buy money. into like a current, like to, to just buy it like into like, yeah, like that's a red flag. Like people wake up like, hello. Second of all, like on, on what you're saying, like, Sadly, it's kind of true. And like, you know, we have to be like honest about that. This guy did spend like millions and millions and millions of dollars to prop up like sometimes progressive candidates, sometimes like shitty centrist candidates, you know, like the Chantal Brown. Yeah. But the reality is that this guy didn't really give a shit about ideology or issues because he said so himself in, in, a, in a Vox uh, interview that was released yesterday. Uh, he talked to a Vox reporter on DMs and he admitted that he had no ethics and that he was just doing this to get rich. So at the end of the day, he was trying to put up candidates in there that were going to uh, uh, put bullshit like crypto regulations that like were not going to amount to anything. And if you go back and look at all of the candidates that he gave money, all of them pledged on their platform or while being in elected office, um, to uh, establish like a, a crypto commission or a cryptocurrency, you know, right. a, a study or whatever to begin this process of, you know, quote unquote regulation of crypto. And you still to this day have that, like people like uh, Kristen Gillibrand who are still today going on panels and pro cryptocurrency events. And it's just fucking unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Like, it, yeah, it, it, I, I honestly like, what can you say about it? Like, there's there's no denying it, you know? Like, the Democrats were neck deep in this corrupt, you know, crypto money from FTX. And to drill down on the effect of altruism, um, it's one of the things I hate the most uh, when, uh, you know, you're talking to someone who, you know, is an ardent defender of capitalism saying, but look at all the charities and the uh, great causes that wealthy people will put their yeah, money into. Philanthropy, also, yeah. I just do not like the idea of wealthy people. I'm sorry, like 
using their money in philanthropy in order to buy good PR for themselves. And they think that's a very cynical view of it. If you look at some of the uh, DMs that this guy has been had that are now public, he essentially is he's maniacally, la- I don't want to say maniacally, but he's laughing all the way to the bank yeah. um, that people are buying this effective altruism thing because not only is the altruism just buying good PR, he says what makes it effective is that I'm doing it. Right. Which is to say, it's not just a matter of I should be able to buy good PR for myself through philanthropic giving, but it should be reified in the press that the people who decide what is good and what is worthy of supporting are people like me. Right. Which I I think I find very morally reprehensible. So I know that's you know I know we're trying to keep it light. But no, no, it's it's there's stuff I like wanna, I'm gonna cu- I'm gonna cut your um your soundbite down to to the very beginning where you were just like generally I don't like wealthy people. And just cut that right there. <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, in general, I know a few that are nice, but, you know, they're not in the press. If they do philanthropic giving, they, it's don't, all part of the scam. they, don't, they don't put out a press release letting people know that they did it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that was our little uh, news roundup, but we're going to head over to our main case for the week, the Thanksgiving Day murders of Paul Marriage and what that tragedy tells us about the sorry state of Florida's mental health care system. Wednesday, December 2nd, 2009. It's a cool, crisp Miami winter night. It's 11 p.m. and I'm on the Miami Herald's news desk alongside a typical skeleton crew of line editors, paginators, clerks, and aimless reporters with the unhealthy habit of lingering at their desk past deadline, acting like helicopter parents for their stories, ensuring that nobody haphazardly misplaces a comma or splits an infinitive in their copy. We've just gone off the floor for the Clipper edition. That's newsroom lingo for the earliest deadline of our night. On a typical shift, There were three printing press deadlines. The Clipper, or the international edition of the paper, would go out first, then Broward and the Keys, and lastly, the final edition would go out to the vast majority of our readership throughout Miami-Dade County. Most of us manning the desk won't call it a night until around 1 a.m., but for this moment, there's a calm in the nightly storm. I'm setting the stage here because this was 13 years ago. These days, post-pandemic, most local newsrooms are dispersed groups of knowledge workers spread across the metro area, filing stories remotely from city halls, Starbucks or home offices. Even before COVID, the Herald in-person newsroom had become a shadow of its former self. But back in 2009, before the Herald's move from its iconic downtown Bayside facility, uh, the fifth floor newsroom was still very much a nerve center for the city. It was a hive of activity where you could just absorb everything that was happening for miles around you. Old hanging TV monitors with all the local stations, CNN, Fox, ESPN playing simultaneously, the sounds of reporters working sources giving you one half of a conversation that, if you were nosy enough, could tell you a whole story hours before it was fit to print. The hum and whir of fax machines, yes, fax machines, serving up incoming press releases. And right at that moment, the Blackberry Storm attached to my hip delivered a familiar double pulse. The message was one of my own sources from within the city of Miami Police Department. It read, FYI, I think we might have a situation. Report that he's at Doubletree. The source added, There will be activity. The Doubletree? As in the Doubletree Grand Hotel right across the street from the Herald, I wondered to myself. From my perch, looking out over Biscayne Bay on clear nights like this, you could see past San Marco, San Marino, and Delito, a series of tiny private enclaves exclusively for the 1%, all the way east to Miami Beach and the expense of the Atlantic Ocean beyond that. I craned my neck across my cubicle, looking out the bay windows, and sure enough, I saw activity. Helicopters had surrounded the area, casting spotlights down along the Venetian Causeway, spilling across Northeast 15th Street 
and illuminating the yacht slips and charters peered along the marina. Right then I knew the late edition of the paper would have to go to bed without my help. You see, one week earlier, I had found myself enveloped in reporting a story that captured the nation's attention for a few brief news cycles. The principal figure in this story was a man named Paul Marriage, a 35-year-old from Miami, born in 1974, the second son of Michael and Carol Marriage. Later, the Marriage family would grow with the addition of twin girls, Lisa and Carla. Raised in a relatively upscale privileged Kendall home, Marriage excelled at Tony Gulliver Preparatory Academy, earning academic honors while lettering in varsity football. He dreamed of one day going to medical school. When he graduated third in his class and headed to the University of Miami, it all seemed more than possible. It seemed likely. But those dreams began to unravel for Paul early on as he began to exhibit signs of mental illness. In 1992, he was declared legally disabled after numerous psychiatric breaks and was diagnosed with depression and obsessive compulsive disorder as a teenager. He threatened his parents once with a gun and twice he tried to take his own life. He suffered a nervous breakdown at the start of his college career that derailed any hopes of medical school. Paul's OCD caused him to fixate. He'd wear multiple pairs of underwear, wash and clean himself, I should say, uh, like at the same time. I think everybody should wear multiple pairs of underwear. But uh, he would wash and clean himself and his clothing to an obsessive degree. He had trouble letting go of moments, compulsively revisiting arguments and interactions from days, weeks, and months past. Paul would later tell his therapist that he was completely preoccupied with death, specifically his own. He would go on to wash out of college and was perennially underemployed through the rest of his adult life. During this time, Paul's relationship with his sisters turned acrimonious. As objects of his obsession, he resented their normal lives and their ability to function successfully, blaming them for his own shortcomings. Eventually, Carla, his sister, would file a temporary restraining order against him in 2006, claiming that he threatened her life and also threatened to kill himself. Meanwhile, Lisa married a man named Patrick Knight, who viewed his new brother-in-law as a big pile of dysfunction, whose problems were of his own making, dragging down the marriage family and costing Michael and Carol thousands of dollars through intervention, treatment, housing, and overall support. More and more disconnected, Paul became the proverbial black sheep of the marriage family. He experienced violent episodes, spates of manic and irrational behavior, and would disappear and reappear at inopportune times. After bouts of estrangement, many members of Paul's extended family went years without seeing him. Thanksgiving 2008 had been a fraught one, controversial enough that the entire marriage family was disinvited from their friend's home for future affairs. A year later, Paul's aunt and uncle, Jim and Muriel Sitton, offered to play host for the family's Thanksgiving day. Along with Michael and Carol, guests included the twins Lisa and Carla, Carla's husband Patrick, family, friends, and 16 attendees overall. Nobody thought Paul, again, an estranged black sheep at this point, who Jim and Muriel hadn't seen in more than a decade. Nobody thought that he would make the drive up from Miami to Jupiter. But what nobody knew is that Paul had been dropping hints that he wanted to be a part of the festivities. In the days before, he texted with his mom, Carol, asking for details of the party, directions, time, who would be there, when they would arrive. It wasn't until everyone was at the party that Carol disclosed this to her daughters, alluding to some worry over Paul's ongoing mental state. Lisa, his sister, learning that her brother might be in attendance, joked darkly that she, quote, hope he doesn't kill us all. When he arrived an hour and a half late, Paul was welcomed with a seat at the table and a full serving. The ensuing three hours were much like any family Thanksgiving. Food, singing, stories, football. At this point, Paul unceremoniously left the party, walking out to his car. 
He returned 20 minutes later, holding a Remington bolt-action rifle. Paul shot both of his sisters, Carla and Lisa, who died on the spot. Paul then fired on his brother-in-law, Patrick, who had rushed to his wife's side, shooting him in the stomach. Patrick survived, but was severely wounded. Paul shot an aunt, Raymond de Joseph, in the shoulder and then shot her a second time, killing her. Later, it was learned that his sister, Lisa, was pregnant at the time. Amidst the chaos, the Sittons took cover in their kitchen. Paul walked to the end of the home's hallway, where he found their six-year-old daughter, Michaela, asleep in her bed, where he shot her three times. On his way out, Paul locked eyes with his father and said, I've been waiting 20 years to do that. He got in his car and drove away. Working as a Metro General Assignments reporter during the Thanksgiving break, I reported the story as breaking news, then I filed a pair of follow-up stories. This is why a week later, following an exhaustive joint task force manhunt across the state, and even as far as Ohio, I was among the first reporters alerted to the reports that Paul Marriage had been spotted at the Doubletree. After 10 p.m., the Herald's main entrance was shut down, and employees working nights exited via a slow freight elevator near the facility's northwest corner. I didn't want to wait on that famously slow elevator, so I sprinted down the five floors of stairwell, out the entrance, and lightly jogged north across Northeast 15th Street, past Venetia, through a narrow alley between the historic Trinity Cathedral and a Bayside apartment building. All the while taking note of that sudden police presence on the ground and in the sky. They were in the middle of setting a perimeter around the hotel, and lights danced off the sleepy downtown side street. Hugging the wall, I followed the path of least resistance past a line of idle yellow cabs in a courtyard that adjoined the marina. There, with a cacophony of law enforcement dulled by more than 100 yards of distance behind me, I saw a man leaned up against a retaining wall, the bay water at his back. He seemed calm and casual, not like someone who had spent a week as the subject of a manhunt. To this day, I'm not sure if he heard me when I squeaked, Paul? Mr. Marriage? I stood there with a Sanyo recorder in my hand, not even sure what I was supposed to do if this was the infamous Thanksgiving Day killer. They don't teach you this shit in journalism school, and I didn't even go to journalism school, so how the fuck would I know? Along with all of Florida, I had been looking at this guy's picture for a week now. Would I recognize Paul Marriage if he was right in front of me? The man looked up at me from his phone in cursory acknowledgement. It wasn't him, just some guy. He walked past me between a set of parking cones and out onto Bayshore Drive, past the police perimeter, heading towards the Omni, and then disappearing into the night. Four weeks later, I was in Puerto Rico for the holidays. When I got the notification that marriage had been caught, from the Associated Press's report, A secretive motel guest in the Florida Keys checked in under a fake name, paid in cash, stockpiled canned food, and insisted on cleaning his own room. He even covered his car, all in effort, the authorities said, to elude the police after he was accused of killing four relatives at Thanksgiving dinner. But the cover of the man, Palmer Hirsch, was blown when the motel owners recognized him in a preview for the television show America's Most Wanted on Saturday night. One of the owners, Melinda Paff, said Sunday that she and her husband, Paul, had rarely seen Mr. Merhinge during his four-week stay at the Edgewater Lodge on Long Key. He checked in December 2nd, a few days after the shooting, using the name John Vaca and a false address. His, his request for privacy did not seem odd on an island chain known for its eccentric residence, Ms. Paff said. 
Yeah, America's most wanted producers were on the scene of the arrest where a handcuffed marriage made comments on camera trying to explain his behavior. 18 years of utter torment. What do you mean by that? I've had chronic medical problems, men, mental, mental problems. It's been a nightmare. I didn't even know what I was doing. Well, I've been hiding out then. I didn't even know what to do. I went several times to turn myself in. I didn't. I was waiting for my parents to maybe make a statement, tell me to try to know what to do. It later came out that Marriage told a psychiatrist about the mental condition that compelled him to do what he did. These are medical records of the defendant, so both sides know what they're dealing with. They're dealing with someone with a long history of mental illness for this about 20 years. This is not a, a defense that was just could possibly just be dreamed up. Paul Marriage took a plea deal where he would evade the death penalty and is now serving seven consecutive life sentences in a Florida prison. The aftermath of this unthinkable tragedy also broke the family in two with the Sittens, who had lost their young daughter, suing the marriages for inviting Paul to their home on that fateful day. I'll spare you all the details of the back and forth on that litigation, save to say that this was a tragedy that basically destroyed a family, along with the four lives that were lost. So again, guys, I wanted to use this as kind of a way for us to talk about um, mental health, which I know has become such a like a buzzword and almost like a, like just like a, a like a tacked on thing at the end of a lot of, I don't know, like awareness campaigns and, and, and things like that. But um here in Florida, particularly, like like you would like you would imagine, um, we don't have a great support system for this. And I was reading um, as recently as t uh, 2020, and this was prior to the pandemic. In 2020, there was a report that for people seeking therapy, the um, the, uh, the 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 wait time had grown to something like like four months. Like it would take you four months to be able to get in in front of a therapist. And um, I, I just wanted to like kind of open it up and, and, and talk to you guys about like, have you or people that you know had any experience firsthand with this? I mean, like, what wh what does what do you guys think of when when we talk about like the shortcomings of Florida's mental health services? Um, I you know of, omitting names, I know people who you know um, are uh, yeah they they have like mental health issues like they definitely like suffer from you know a variety of different you know, uh, maladies. What always concerns me is, is that access to a therapist, um, or a psychoanalyst, whatever it is they need, psychiatrist, um, is always tenuous on, and it's usually dependent on their ability to pay for it out of pocket. It's an yeah. expensive thing. And if you don't have medical insurance, um, and even if you do have medical insurance might not be covered. Yeah. Um, you know, it is very much, uh, you know, up in New York, in Manhattan, it is something of a status symbol. Like it is some, it is, because not only has it been destigmatized, now people will show off about ha having access to. It's a, a status. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, since yeah. the 90s in New York, it's almost been a status symbol. If you, if you're like upper middle class or higher, you will just name drop. Oh, yeah, I was talking about this with my therapist or whatever, as like a, that's something I have, you know? In my my like uh, I guess my Rolodex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for people who are lower income, um, it is an open question whether they will receive the medical attention that they need, um, and if they don't, um, what their next day is going to look like. Um, they might not know where they're going if they don't get uh, the attention that they need. Um, so it's you know, 
it, it sucks. Like it's, it's, it's not good to th like anything else that has to do with medicine. Um, I'd say Florida's public infrastructure for it. Like we were saying before is like virtually non-existent. We found that out during COVID. Um, but to, to know that someone could snap at any time and it didn't have to be that way. And the reason why it was that way is they didn't have the money to get healthy in the first place. Uh, I mean, I know Tomas and I, we've talked about how you, you will remark that when you go to other countries and then you come to these the states and see that like something like just taking care of your own mental well-being, like it, it is, it, it's almost like, I mean, I'm not religious, but it's all, there's like an element of sin to it. Well, I was actually going to touch on that because I happen uh, to be from Argentina which also happens to be the country with the largest amount of psychologists uh, per capita in the world. Uh, almost everyone <laughs> in Buenos Aires and in the country is on therapy. And that's just like an actual statistic. Um, but and why? Also how, have, how, how did that end up that way? What was the conditions that, that made that? Or what, did it just happen that way? You know, I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming it must be um, something around like the, like the culture or like, something around like the, you know, the tradition of like the, the medical field or like, you know, the some maybe like immigrants abroad, you know, like psychoanalysis from Europe, you know, like Freudian style, because there's a lot of like psychotherapy, there's less of an emphasis on like psych psychiatry, mm -hmm. I'm more on psychoanalysis, right? Um, whatever, like, that, like that's like a whole therapy, debate yeah. in and of itself. But uh, you know, another thing is Argentina um, has socialized healthcare, right? Uh, and it's not just socialized healthcare for like residents, like like it's for anybody in the country can access like uh, public like health services. Obviously, there's like weights and stuff like that, but it's pretty good actually. Uh, it's comprehensive uh, and it's available to everyone. Um, so you know, yeah, it's just uh, I just think it's fucking barbaric like in this country um you know the fact that not it's not just mental health it's just like every single aspect of health is privatized and and giving a profit incentive but you know like mental health is um just really really important right i mean like the mind is so fragile and i'll say you know from my own perspective right now i'm an independent contractor you know i work on on you know on a consulting basis so i don't have health care you know uh, and I was going to, I, I, I'm luckily have like, like, I, I don't, I don't suffer for any, from any mental illness. At least I think, you know, I think I have like relatively well, like pretty good mental health, but you know, I have my own issues like everybody and I struggle with things and I was going to a therapist, but when I moved into, you know, like uh, working as an independent contractor, I lost my healthcare and it was like so prohibitively expensive to pay a therapist and I had to drop it. Um, and, you know, I was like, you know, I was upset at that. I, yeah. I thought it was like really helping me. So yeah, just a shame. Yeah. When you tie these things, these things to like economic conditions, I mean, we're staring down the barrel of another recession. How many people, you know, who, who will during the quote unquote natural course of that recession, who will lose their job will also lose that benefit that maybe is, incredibly important to their life it's like they need that outlet they need that that person that um to to talk to i mean it's it's and it, it, it's perverse i think to like tie that to tie that wellness to you know your whether or not you have a job which i guess yeah. we, we've all just come to accept but except for those of us who don't accept that but um 
I, I want to make a point, though, really quickly that in talking about the marriage story, one thing that I bulleted and I, I really wanted to, to, to mention is that it is true that um, that uh, people with mental illness are way more likely to be the victims of crime than they are yeah. the perpetrators. So I think it's important where, again, we're being very conscious in what we're doing here where we like you're using we're not like true crime chicks or whatever. We're like using these stories mm. to tell something else. We don't want to like just, um, you know, have. <laughs> I saw some crazy true crime shit recently, guys. It's just this the amount of true crime stuff that's out there is a little vulgar. I gotta be <laughs> honest. But um, what about just like broadly? I, I pulled up here. If you guys are looking at it, and you, if you're listening, you can't see it. But um, recently on October twenty or October eighteenth. The uh, governor's office here in Florida um, announced, <clears throat> well, I'll just read the headline. First Lady Casey DeSantis announces mental resiliency tools in response to Hurricane Ian. Family support line in partnership with BetterHelp. Now, this isn't exactly what we're talking about, but like this is the kind of stuff that we do here where it's basically like papering over problems. Where it's like, when if you go on to read this press release, it's just like, it's a phone number and like some digital assets and just it's it's like here you go guys this this should fix your mental health this reminds me of like the effectiveness of having like um what do you call it like one of those one of those t cards that you debit cards that you pay into pre-tax to be able to get like it's like is that really helping people bullshit. it's bullshit yeah exactly yeah. Uh, this i mean we were talking about it with bitcoin this is just effective altruism from the governor's office this is just someone putting forward a solution to look like they're doing something to buy good pr for themselves the idea that anyone who lost their house and lost their car maybe lost a family member, a loved one, or if not lost, injured, you know, and they're really going through it. The idea that they're like sitting with their hands in their head, going through their phone and saying, all right, let me dial 888-850-SWFL and right. call. Like, that's just not realistic. Like, let me download a voucher for it's my It's not the my same healthcare. as having a doctor. It's not the same as having a doctor. That's not to dismiss anyone who's working at, what is it, the uh, Department of Health, um, who are they partnering with here? Better help. I'm not trying to disparage any work that they're going to do on this hotline. Um, I'm sure they're going to receive some calls that are very distressing. What are they going to say on the other end? That's the same as having a medical professional to talk to. This is the stuff that, I mean, like, I don't know if you guys have noticed, like all of the, what's turning into sort of like a pill mill for um, Adderall like just a million different yeah. apps that, that are like, you probably have ADD. Like, I mean, they just come out and say like, you probably have ADD, just call this number and, and get diagnosed and get your prescription right. for Adderall, like in a heartbeat. And I mean, I, I, I'm sure that people are probably gonna be responsible for the, with that, but also there's probably like a pretty solid contingent of Rush Limbaugh type people who are gonna be pill shopping and just, you know, housing sure. them, yeah. Also, just people who like, you know, as we were going down the like the guy, you know, the guy's family saying he would ruminate on stuff from days, weeks, months ago. Is there anyone who doesn't do that at some point in the day, like ruminate on something? There's going to be people who be like, oh, I ruminate. I should be on drugs. Like, right. that's not, you know. Yeah, that's not like a diagnosis, right? Yeah. A lot of this stuff, and we were talking, Jared, before we got on, right, about like the fact that this guy, Paul Marriage, today, he could... Even, you know, since 2009, what are all the intervening tragedies we've had? We've had Las Vegas. We've had Parkland. We've had, yeah. um, you know, we've had uh, uh, Newtown. 
we named a whole bunch before, right? I mean, like you could yeah. San Bernardino, whatever. I mean, this guy legally got that gun. He could legally that same guy with the same mental background could get the gun again. Like, I mean, he could very easily, and you you made the point he could do it in upstate New York too. Like, it's it's there is still, and I feel like it's beating a dead horse at this point because I don't even know where the national discourse is on this whole Second Amendment question. But like, it it, it seems like there's no even attempt to like join the like databases where it's like okay well here's a bunch of people that might be a problem here's people who are applying for gun permits and maybe we should join or fuse these two databases together but it doesn't seem like any of that is happening i i i think that they i mean just be living where i'm living um which is now uh lawler country um they i like knowing them as well as i do they would say that this is a plot. It sounds reasonable. Everything you're saying sounds perfectly reasonable. Why wouldn't we stop people who um, are mentally ill from buying guns? Because they might do something with them, something terrible. Yeah. They would say that, A, you're setting up a database of people, bad. Um, you are investigating into their mental health, bad. And C, they would, all you need to do is have a credible accusation of mental illness in order to keep people from purchasing a gun. So all they need to do is say that conservatives are mentally ill and then you can't buy guns anymore. And if you think that sounds insane, like it gets worse. <laughs> That's where that goes. Even if it sounds perfectly reasonable. They will say they will self-victimize, like because that's. I'm sorry if you're listening to this. If you're the one guy in MAGA country who listens to this, if you're an epic patriot dad, they like nothing more than the comfort of the victim's chair. Um, they would rather someone else be taking their chances that a mentally ill person got a gun and shot somebody, or like you said, was the victim of uh, violence, um, was on the receiving end of it. Um, than uh, set up a situation where anyone could be denied a gun for almost any reason. You know, that theoretical guy you're talking about, I just, as an aside, I love the idea of somebody who maybe is like a big Trump guy, but hates Ron DeSantis. And like, that's common now. And, and like, I don't yeah, know no, you know, no, but that's like, common now. I know, that's what I'm saying. And stumbles across like Tomas's videos sweating Ron DeSantis and is like, I like that Argentinian boy. I'm going to follow his podcast. <laughs> Don't forget, don't forget Tucker, Tucker Tucker Carlson reads Jacobin so he has more talking points about why the Democrats suck. So I wouldn't put it outside the realm of possibility. Hey, look, I, I'll take your uh, follow, I'll take your retweet, and I'll take your subscription. <laughs> a win is a win, baby. A win is yeah, a win. Yeah. A win is a win. A follower is a follower. No, but, you know, like the... The, the, the thing that is most so perverse, though, about the right-wingers on this issue, especially on the gun issue, is that there's been this, like, uh, in some sectors, this push towards talking about mental health every time there's, like, a, a school shooting or a mass shooting, right? Uh, and then there's there's been this pushback also on, on, on the liberal side, right, to, like, no, we, we can't talk about mental health because it's just all the guns. And it's just so insane. Yeah. From both sides, to be honest, although it's, it's absolutist, it's absolutist on both sides. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's worse on the right wing side, and I'm going to get to that because, of course, mental health plays into it, and that's not to like blame like you know like mentally ill people or those suffering from mental health problems, but like the fact that there's more guns than people in this country, while there are like a complete collapse of like mental health services everywhere, like that's not a good combination. 
But the problem with the right wingers, it's that like they don't want to do anything about the guns and they don't want to do anything about, about, about the mental health issue. So it's like, what is there left to do here? Right. It, remind, it reminds me of the, no of, the, of the violence in Chicago debate where it's like, oh, well, you know that most of the crimes that happen on a given, most of the gun violence that happens on a given day is black on black crime in Chicago. It's not. And it's like, OK, well, then what is your plan for that? Or is it just a canard? Is it just something that you're floating out there to? to they also take talk the about tra- the whenever there's a shooting, they talk about mental health like it's the weather. That it's just a fact of life. You can't. There's nothing to do about it. It's just oh well, you know, we don't take mental health seriously enough. That's just they're like, oh, well, what are you gonna do? That's like, well, we, well answer we, the question. What are you going to do? We have a Second Amendment, and we're gonna interpret it to its broadest possible, you know, meaning and. Fuck off. People are going to die. <laughs> Which and I, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. The more violent um, in its expression, uh, rightist politics becomes, the more they will conflate the Second Amendment with the first, yeah. which is to say that my expressions of violence are a form of speech. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to start hearing that argument be made as we get further and further into the 2020s. Well, that goes back I mean, to, your, sure. to your thing about the databases, too. It's like the, the, the subjugation, the, persecu- the, the, the complexes of persecution. No, of course. I mean, they, they don't have any arguments. After Uvalde, like, you know, they, they try talking about the mental health thing. And like that doesn't go anywhere because they don't have any solutions towards mental health anyway. So like they don't have any proposals to resolve that. Uh, and they don't want to. And anything that could be proposed would go against all like th- their ideology. Yeah. But, um, you know, like their solution was the, the main talking point that we've heard. And it wasn't just Ted Cruz saying it. This was like a thing repeated on the right was like, we need one door. We need one door in the school. You guys remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. One door for, the way to, to go in and out. Is, we just have one door in the school and we track who's coming in and out. And it's just like, really? Like, this is the solution? Like, the other thing was we're um, going to have kids just die in like a horrible fire instead of just like a, a school shooting. Like, they wanted, the bo- don't worry, they wanted booby traps in the hallways of the schools too, which I'm sure like whoever uh, would be manufacturing those are probably the same people that were selling weapons to Iraq in the 2000s and to Ukraine now. It's just another way to keep defense contractors paid. <laughs> Yeah, but doesn't it seem like a lot of this stuff, like when they when they come up with these harebrained ideas, like um, uh, you know, oh, the the origin of the whole kitty litter, you know, furry thing, as we found out, is sure. that like that there were some classes that did have kitty litter in them, but it was in case of a shooting. It was you have a, to piss during a shooting. In case yeah. you have to piss during a, in case a five year old has to take a piss. Yeah. During a shooting, because it's so, less embarrassing to piss on the floor, you know. But like all of these things are just, they're not meant to really be, it seems like at least what, what comes out of the right, it's not meant to be um, prospective solutions or even just like outlandish solutions. They're just meant to be rejoinders. They're just meant to be responses that you can, like you can, I, I saw somebody once a few years ago programmed a Twitter AI to just have the gun debate with itself. And it was the same, it was like, like the all the typical talking points from the right and from the left. And it just can play itself through any maze of that of because the the argument is so well worn at this point it's all just about having a contrary talking point it doesn't actually it's like divorced from the reality it's it, and and it's 
really fucking dispiriting to see. It's the same thing with mental health care where it's just yeah. like, you know, it's just a rejoinder. It's just something to say. It's not even like a real thing to, to for, for like in terms of proposals or policy or something coming down the pike. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it, I, I pulled some other statistics, like one, for instance, saying that, um, you know, I tried to make ground this a little bit more. I think that there's a lot of, uh, and you guys both, I think can attest to this. I think that there's a lot of untreated rage in Florida, particularly on the roads in Florida. Oh yeah. One thing that I, I pulled is that there had been 32 fatal incidents of road rage in Florida from 2017 through 2021. Um, and I mean, I, I think that we don't talk enough about how angry we are and how angry, like, uh, I mean, like you could say this broadly for the whole country, but like specifically here in Florida, navigating this, this state pisses you off. It's, it makes yeah. you feel shitty. And just like ambiently bad, and like I, I, I just, it feels like a lot of these things are sort of like sprawl. Like you can't even get your arms around them. The, the problems are so big, um, because like how do you fix that? How do you fix that life sucks if you're like in Deland or something like that? Yeah, there was uh, I forget who it was um, was bringing up the point that like a lot of the violence. Um, in America has to be attributed to the structure of American society for this reason. In Lebanon, um, I think it's one of the few places where they have more guns per person than the United States. But for all the things that happen in Lebanon, what doesn't happen very often is school shootings. They, they, it does not occur to someone and say, well, I've got these guns, might as well use them, might as well go shoot up some kids. So there's something, like you said, that ambient noise of American life that is driving people nuts. I, like to Tomas's point, I don't think it's. I think the guns are part of it, but I don't think it's just the guns because there are societies that have a lot of guns where that you don't have to worry about whether your kid is coming home from school that day. I I, I agree a hundred percent. I think the guns are a problem. I mean, full disclosure, I'm a gun owner myself, but yeah, you know, same. Um, I think the guns are a problem, but um, there's something about our society whether it's the lack of mental health services, how alienating and isolating and lonely it is, how violent it is, how divisive and racially violent it is. I think there's so much culturally uh, that's just like toxic about this country uh, that's driving people, uh, you know, uh, to, to take these violent actions. And again, there's like no support for folks who are, uh, you know, suffering from mental mental illness. Um, you know, I was talking with a friend recently, we were having breakfast, and he was saying, you know, we were just talking about a bunch of different things in politics, and he, he's a, he, he rec semi-recently became a father, right, like a couple of years ago. And he was saying, he's like, you know, my, my kid's about to start school, and it just makes me so angry that, like, I'm genuinely, like, worried you know that like this could happen in miami like you know or you know or, or that like he said like my kid like literally has to go through because his his the, the mother you know his partner works at the county and and it's true like he's like kids have to go through regular school shooting drills in miami-dade public schools and in, in a lot of public school districts across the country and i was like I asked him, I was like, do you like, because we both went to Miami Day public schools. I was like, do you remember doing public, like uh, school shooting drills when you went to, to public school here? It was like, no, actually, like we never did that. And I was like, no. yeah, we didn't either. Like that was, I've never did it. Like, you know, I went to public school, like 2000, like 
high school 2005 to 2009 i didn't i didn't do uh, elementary school here i was in argentina but in, in high school and middle school we never did like school shooting drills so yeah. that shows you the problem is getting worse yeah. you know and this is like traumatic for kids you know oh, to have to do freaking school sh like shooting drills you know in the middle of the day like it's horrible I, I don't tell the story a lot. Um, so my younger brother um, was working in the Garden State Plaza. I think it was 2014 um, when someone brought a gun. Uh, I think it was an assault rifle um, into the mall. And they, uh, they started locking things down. Everyone went into the closet, all the rest. Um, they, they were able to apprehend the guy before he got a shot off. So I don't, I, if memory serves me correctly, it wasn't a deadly situation. Um, but uh, my brother want, was thinking about maybe he wanted to be a music teacher uh, when he, you know, when, you know, as, as, as he got older, I said, I never want to teach in America because yeah. I'm afraid of what might happen. This, this basically was like, this could be how it ends for me. You know, like just this one experience in the mall was enough to kill off a career aspiration of teaching music to kids here in the States. And it's not unreasonable to think, okay, you know, this, if I, if I want to teach kids, I have to assume that I might not come home that day, you know? Yeah. Right before Parkland, um, my, my, right after Parkland, uh, my daughter was in kindergarten at the time. And, um, one of the things that, uh, it just, it still fucks with me is that when they're doing those drills for the really little kids for kindergarten and pre-K, they don't even talk about what it is. They just say, it's like turtle time or they come up with like a, you know, sure. like some kind of festive like name for it or something like you gotta they, make they, it fun for kids. Yeah. Right. Because like, you can't tell a five-year-old like, Hey, we're doing this. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's, it's horrifying to think of it. They actually last year had what was called a, um, a red notice or a, a red alert at my, my, my daughter's uh, school. It was because one of the houses near the school, apparently there was a man who was like right in my neighborhood who was contemplating suicide and he was observed contemplating suicide. He had a gun in his hand and was sitting in his backyard in view of the elementary school. And um, I just like, I mean, it's terrifying. It's fucking terrifying. And it's it's rampant. And I I think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg of like of what's really going. That, that that's another thing that pisses me off. T like back to your point of like the way that it turns into narrative is like a lot of people. I don't know if you guys remember this that that like there was a um a moment where the narrative was actually masks are making kids kill themselves at a higher rate or, or something like that. Do you remember like in the myriad million different like arguments about COVID in like 2020 to 2021, there was a, there was one of those bullshit conservative arguments about it being a mental care, a mental health care issue. Oh, kids staying home. That's good. And what pisses me off about that is that there is truth to it. It is bad. And it is like the last two years has been really tough on kids and every, everybody really, but like also on kids and there probably is a spike and there probably is something that we should examine there about, like a coming like we're gonna have teenagers who have like all types of you know problems that we didn't experience like socialization problems and all this stuff and it, it, it the liberal order will kind of dismiss it because it's a conservative talking point to distract from actual covid policies and it's it's infuriating man it's like it goes back to your point t about like about these dueling narratives that just end up canceling each other out and then fucking nothing gets done 
Like, I do think it's something that's going to be up to contended with. Like, I, I went on a date with someone earlier in the year. Um, she was a dance instructor. And she uh, she said that the one thing she noticed is the kids who, like, were coming of age during lockdown and quarantine aren't socialized. Like, yeah. like they're five. And these five-year-old kids are way behind where the five-year-olds 2019 and before were in terms of their levels of socialization. And there's it's completely reasonable, like you said, that if you were to spend you know all your time living in a box, wearing a mask, what have you, that it would not feel that you would not be brought up the same way as if you were around other people in a free, you know, environment. Again, it's not we didn't like no one took on these measures because it's like let's fuck with the kids. It was we're trying to keep people from dying. You know, <laughs> like that was the way I think I remind people is like we were doing everything possible because we, you know, we. I remember in February where they were wondering if the disease attached itself to currency and because of the way currency travels all around the world at such speeds that maybe that's how it we were doing everything we could until we knew more and like you said like i do think this is going to be something that's going to have to be contended with of getting these kids up to speed and getting you know everyone properly socialized everyone you know um you know up, up, up to where they need to be i'm not saying it's, it's going to be as easy done as said but it's not like we did this just to see what would happen. Hey guys, funny. Here's a funny prank. Let's yank kids out of school and have them wear masks. Like it's not like this yeah, was you we're know. doing this shit for fun. <laughs> no, but this wasn't a jack. This wasn't a two year jackass thing. You but know? there is always that thing though, Jerry. Where they always like they always act like it's um they always act like it's about control. Like well, they is, call it mu- they call it muzzling. They'll say they don't even call it masking anymore. They call it muzzling. Yeah, but you know, there's even, a reason for that. Even like the contours of the even the contours of the debate when you apply it to like vaccine, it's like it's control. It's gonna program you. There's like fucking Bill Gates put his um like uh you know code jizz. Well, he's doing nanochips in your blood. Yeah, nanochips, you know? not code jizz. I like yeah. code jizz though. Oh, that's I <laughs> <laughs> I think I think they 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 would have had to have a better they'd have to have more levity in their lives to come up with something like that. I think. Uh, looking at a few statistics here, and you know, I, one thing I I hadn't known until I was like getting ready for this episode is that um they unveiled a national um uh mental illness and well I think it's a suicide prevent or mental health mental health crisis hotline. Did you guys know that nine eight eight is um the number to type the number to call? Uh, and if you're out there listening, I mean, like, I know that the responsible thing is to put in disclaimers when we're talking about stuff like this. 988, if you ever do have any kind of, like, you know, suicidal ideation or if you just need help yeah. or something like that, call that number. But I'm looking at some numbers here from a uh, National Associ- a National Alliance of Me- on Mental Health report from last year uh, on 2021 uh, that said in February 2021, there's a, a bunch of takeaways from, from this report, but... Um, February 2021, 40.8% of adults in Florida reported symptoms of anxiety or depression. Um, 24.8% were able, unable to get um, needed counseling or therapy. To Tomas's point earlier, uh, one in 20 U.S. adults experienced serious mental health, uh, mental illness each year. Um, in Florida, again, 648,000 adults have a serious mental illness. That's, I mean, in a state of 21 million people, that's not a small number, you know. Um, so... Uh, again, this is like I think we're, we're going to find that as we as we do a lot of these, why are we like this? We're gonna we're gonna have a lot of problems that either don't have solutions or or just they have solutions but they're not politically possible. So, well, yeah, the scale of the solution is too grand to be confined just to Florida. I would say, you know, if if, if we're pinpointing 
like we said, like the structure of society, we need to be changed um, and transformed so that there's not all this inherent violence. Um, that's not something you could just confine just to Florida. Yeah. And something I want to do also say is that like, even if you are insured in the United States, like that doesn't mean that you have adequate access right. to healthcare services. Yep. Because your insurance is going to always try to fuck you and not cover you not as pay. much as possible. Right. And, and there'll always be like co-pays and things like that. Uh, deductibles are killer. Like if you have a if you have a condition if you have a mental health care condition and your deductible is twenty thousand yeah. bucks, how is that helping you? Or ten thousand yeah. bucks, how is that helping you? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just that, being insured is not just you know a, a a pass. You know, to just like oh no, I can go to a psychologist. No, that it, it still means that like you know a, a financial burden on you is significantly less, but. You know, just the, the whole system's fucked up. Yeah, and even even if you do have, to your point, T, if you, even if you do have healthcare uh, health insurance, you're also a prisoner of your market, where because we've turned this into a market based economy, right? We've turned it into a um, a commodified you know industry as opposed to something that is like you know more centrally planned. And it says right here in this report, six point six point four million people in Florida live in a community that does not have enough mental health professionals and you could probably say that about huge swaths of this country where there are like if you live in certain places like you might not have a decent uh, uh, a decent therapist to even get on a four-month wait list and or, or maybe if you require you know a specialist for what for you know whatever condition you're experiencing like it, it just might not be possible like the closest thing might be the, the closest person might be hours away and yeah you know, it, it, it's it's accessibility the same um you know the same accessibility argument that, that we've been having like forever in this country my first instinct is to tell a joke and a lot of what we've talked about is very unfunny so i i don't know <laughs> we kept it light we kept it light up front i mean we had a lot of funny shit in the beginning that's why i was like I oh, damn we got to talk about something other than just like you know i will say we do have a listener uh that we've referenced in past episodes that left a review saying that we giggle too much oh yeah are you happy now yeah are you, you happy be, is this what you wanted you should be glad this is what you asked for yeah, yeah. listener happy yeah Rob does our joy and laughs. I guess I guess I'll just never laugh. I guess I'll just never have fun. I guess I'll just never yeah. enjoy myself. And and, now, and 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 just in time for the uh, second, uh, well, I guess third uh, Trump presidential run, and we can't That's right. laugh. Thanks, thank you, listener. Yeah. That's all for this episode of Why Are We Like This? Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at wawlt.com. Follow us on Twitter Walt. at Walt Show and on TikTok at Walt Show. You can Walt. also email us at walt at allpointswest.net. Until next time, this was Why Are We Like This? Walt, Walt, Walt. Walt Mafia Rising. <laughs>